This is the Creativity Podcast, Episode 11. Welcome to Creativity. That wonderful music was by Portuguese composer David Persson, written specifically for the film Offstage Stories by our special guest in this issue of Creativity, director Jonathan Waitman. My name is Harlan and my co-host on Creativity is... Adrienne Thomas. Hi, Adrienne. Hi, Harlan. Adrienne, please introduce Jonathan. Bring in Jonathan. Okay, our special guest today is Jonathan Waitman, who is an actor, a director, a writer, filmmaker. He writes books, stories, plays. I mean, he does a lot of stuff. He lives in Lisbon with his lovely partner, Keith, and they've done a lot of work together in that community. And he just carries on being creative. Hi, Jonathan. Hello. Thanks for that very nice introduction, Adrienne. Not all completely true, but it's (laughs) more or less. More or less is probably okay, Jonathan. Now, you and I exchanged a few notes before our interview with you, and you said things that you wanted to talk about and gave a short list to us. Mm -hmm. You said you wanted to talk about being queer, being a migrant, not knowing whether I'm from the USSR or the USA, or Portugal. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about words and language, about amateur stroke professional, and writing, directing, and music. That's a lot of subjects. Kind of forgotten about that list, but yes. It... Well, where do you want to start? Perhaps I should start with the idea of always having felt a bit of an outsider, which is partly because of my sexuality. And I remember that I'm 75 now, so I was kind of brought up in a time when actually being queer was uh, still a crime, as well as being very difficult to deal with as a young man. But the, the other aspect of my not feeling that I belong anywhere is that my mother was actually Brazilian. She was born in Sao Paulo. Her mother was Uruguayan from Montevideo. And so I've always felt this, there are places I never went to until later in life, but there are always places that I felt that I sort of belonged to in a strange kind of way. And so I never felt totally English, and I still don't feel 
totally English, although my education and my upbringing were, were in England in, in a very conventional way, I think. But I've never really completely felt English. And I think, you know, being queer as well, you know, the whole thing makes me feel a little bit outside everything else. Queer is a term that was kind of forbidden to use at one point. Oh, absolutely. It was, It was. yes. Like the N-word, it was. Mm. That's changed. And I think that queer encompasses um, a far wider range of gender possibilities now than it did when I was younger. I've often wondered, how did you and when did you end up in Portugal? Well, the story is my mother went to Portugal. She got divorced from my father and then she was widowed and was broke living in England, very unhappy, and decided she wanted to go back to Brazil. But she couldn't quite make it to Brazil, so she went to the nearest place that spoke Portuguese, which was Portugal. And it was still the dying days of the, the dictatorship. She ended up in Stubal, near Lisbon, a, a big industrial city. And I used to visit her there in the university vacation. And I happened to be in Portugal on the 25th of April 1974, which is when the amazing revolution happened. And I think if you've been present at a revolution, you will never forget it. Whatever kind of revolution it was, you will never forget it. And I think it's largely because of the uh, 74 revolution that I decided to come back later to make my, my home in Lisbon. And I think that the, the spirit of the revolution, although it's been diluted and it's and God, you know, society has changed so much. But I think the spirit, the germ of that revolution still resides somewhere in the Portuguese psyche. And it's interesting to contrast Portugal with Spain. Spain never had a revolution. Britain never had a revolution apart from, from well, of course. And I think it could do with one too. And it was a peaceful revolution, of course. It was a peaceful revolution. It was a peaceful very Portuguese. It, it was a peaceful revolution. I think one person died, but they died of a heart attack. What's the Carnation connection? The revolution was brought about by low-level army officers, people who'd been fighting in the colonial wars mostly and realised it was an unwinnable war, both mm -hmm. uh, in Africa and at home. And when they gave the call for the revolution, there was a flower seller in the Rocio, and she gave out her carnations to the soldiers. But there are pictures of people putting carnations down the barrels of the guns of the soldiers. Exactly. Right. No, it was truly exciting to be here for, for the revolution. Absolutely amazing. As with all revolutions, a period of great instability followed the revolution, and it took time for things to settle down. They didn't always settle down in the way that I wanted, or even in the way the revolutionaries wanted. But it was a very exciting time to be around, I must say. And you stayed after that? No, I went back. I went back to Britain, but I kept in touch with Portugal. I was always very interested with what was going on and how the revolution would pan out. So I still came back to visit my mother during the vacations, and it was always uh, fascinating. And my mother lived in a little village in Munchique in the mountains in the north of the Algarve. She was very much part of a small community, so it was like seeing in miniature what was happening in the whole country. So, Jonathan, I think the stories around your mother are fascinating. Could you tell us a little bit more about her and her late flowering, I think you would call it, which fits so perfectly into the ethos of this broadcast? Well, that's exactly what I was thinking about, Adrienne, is that my mother is a perfect example of creativity because she started a new career, a new life, when she was well into her 60s and actually made a living from her new life as a painter. 
She had no tra- had had no training at all, but she suddenly decided, and it was partly uh, economic circumstances that forced her to it. But she decided she wanted to paint. She'd always she'd always loved color, and she'd be, she was very good at making things with materials. But she'd never used paint before. From the first time she picked up her brush when she was about sixty four, she never stopped, and she made a reasonable living. Wow. She was completely broke, and it's kind of saved her life. In Monchique at the time of the revolution, she was abandoned by her man. So there she was up in the mountains by herself, the revolution having happened, no money, little bit of land. She reinvented herself, first of all, as a farmer. But then a couple of years later, she discovered this wonderful thing called painting. And it, it changed her life. It was wonderful. It's such an inspirational story. Yeah. Now, all the times you were going to the north in the mountains of the Algarve, I guess you were speaking Portuguese. You're a Portuguese speaker, I presume. I speak Portuguese, but I wasn't brought up speaking Portuguese, although my mother's first language was Spanish, but her second language was Portuguese. Her third language was was English. Mm -hmm. But Portuguese was not spoken when I was young at all. My mother and grandmother used to speak Spanish to each other. When my parents wanted to say things that they didn't want the children to understand, so I said Portuguese. In those notes I referred to, you said you didn't know whether you're from the USSR or the USA or no, Portugal. That's, that, no, that was that was not that. That was because I also spent a year in the USSR. This is much, much later. The year that the USSR broke up, I was recruited by the British Council to work in a university in Tashkent, the capital of Uzbekistan. And I spent an extraordinary year there, the year that the USSR was visibly disintegrating. Although I didn't quite realize what was going on at the time, my stupidity. It was kind of slower in Uzbekistan than it was in the rest of the Union. But mm. it was an extraordinary time to be there. Very alienating time, too, I have to say. Right. And that's also related to another revolution, the Russian Revolution, of course. Wherever you go, Jonathan, there are revolutions. Isn't it Zelig, the Woody Allen film, where the character keeps turning up in crucial historical situations? That's right. That's right. I'd forgotten that. Yes, yes. The, the wall didn't actually fall till after I'd left Moscow. And, and you could see the disintegration going on very, very clearly. Mm. So how did you end up in Lisbon and your creative life that you built there? Okay, I'm going to go back a little bit because uh-huh. I met Keith, my now husband, on a professional gig to co-direct a play in Cornwall. And I went down to Cornwall to do this job. And there was Keith. He was playing one of the characters. It was Les uh, Enfants Terribles by Cocteau, and he was playing Gerard. And we fell in love. And we've been together ever since. This was 1975. Keith is American, and unfortunately, he was declared an undesirable alien in Britain. There was a very strong anti-immigrant flavor to the politics of the time. And Keith was considered an undesirable alien. And although we really wanted to stay in London, we were having a gas in London, we were doing plays, we were doing all kinds of things. But he had to leave. He was forcibly deported. And because of that, we realized that we didn't have a possibility of living together in London. So we started looking for other places to live. We first of all tried Paris, then we tried Madrid, and then we ended up in Lisbon, where I had sort of family connections. Lisbon was easier. We could find somewhere to live. We could find work. Everything kind of worked out for us. Mm. And that's an aspect of Lisbon that's always fascinated me, because let's Portugal is a Catholic 
deeply conservative country, mm. which I wouldn't have thought was terribly embracing of gay lifestyle. And yet I'm told Lisbon is the gay capital of Europe. It's amazing that that's happened. And it's especially amazing for me when I think of my visits to Portugal in the 1960s. It was a grey dictatorship. It was an awful place. Yeah. And the, the transformation, and it's partly because of the revolution, we have to see it like that, that Portugal has changed incredibly. It's still got a conservative Catholic base, but it has managed to change on the surface, especially in urban areas. They used to use the expression brandish kustums which means mild customs <laughs> or bland customs. And that's kind of true, is that they don't like to stir things up too much. They prefer to let things take their course. Can you join the dots up for us, please, Jonathan, between you shuttling backwards and forwards as a university student to Lisbon and then meeting Keith in Cornwall? Actually, I, I'd like to go back a bit. to how, how I got into theatre initially was at school. I went to very nasty schools, two very nasty boarding schools, and I didn't like sport, which was a huge problem. But my one way out was doing plays. I was cast always as a woman. I played Lady Macbeth and I played St. Joan. I was always cast as women because I was small, <laughs> I think, but it might have been something else that they saw in me. Uh, but I didn't mind and they didn't mind. And it was great. I was longing to play a male part, but that never happened. But that was the beginning. And then in 1966, I auditioned for the National Youth Theatre and I was accepted. And that was even more amazing. And then I decided, oh, well, I want to make my life in the theatre. And so I applied for various jobs. And to my amazement, I was accepted as an ASM. ASM is an assistant stage manager in a repertory theatre. Now, people don't know what repertory theatres are now, but repertory theatres were the backbone of English theatre. They were usually provincial, local theatres that ran a programme changing the play every two or three weeks. And it was the most wonderful training ground for anyone involved in the theatre arts, you know, whether it was design or acting or stage management or direction. It was the most amazing thing. And I stayed for two seasons in rep. And that was the turning point in many ways because I learned lots about how to do theatre. But I also realised at the same time that I didn't really want to be an actor in the conventional theatre. And so despite having such a wonderful time, I decided to leave after two seasons. And that's when I went to university. I was lucky enough to get a place at Manchester University on the drama course. So that is my theatre story. But it doesn't end there. A university was just drugs and rock and roll, of oh, course. It was 1967, boring. for goodness how did sake. You survive yeah, it, all, it was just too wonderful for words. But I don't think really it advanced me very much in my theatre career, except it gave me a taste for um, directing. But then when I left, I didn't want to go back into rep. I didn't want to do conventional theatre. So I went into community theatre. And I was lucky enough to get a place at a community arts organisation called Interaction, based in London, where I became a member of the street theatre group called Dog's Troop. And that was another amazingly learning time, you know, learning how to do theatre on the streets with rough kids. Very, 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 very important. I did a tiny little bit of street theatre in Ocelot at college. The crowds that, in my judgmental brain, I might have thought were rough or difficult or didn't know anything about theatre were incredibly talented, warm, and embraced what we were doing, amazingly. 
Absolutely. I, I had no idea that mm. I was dealing yeah. with rough audiences. It wasn't like that at all, although we were playing on adventure playgrounds all over London and not only London, all over Europe. We actually travelled all over Europe on a double-decker bus to the roughest places you can imagine. Never had any idea that I was playing to rough audiences. It was always a pleasure, I think. At what point did you start realising your interest in directing? Was it straight away when you were a member of these groups? Yes. Well, really, my first opportunity came in 1983, I think it was, when Ken Livingstone was the leader of the Greater London Council. I don't know whether people remember who Ken Livingstone was or what the Greater London Council was. But the Greater London Council was a great organisation that gave terrific opportunities to people on the fringes of society, as I felt myself to be at the time. And they ran a gay theatre festival called September in the Pink. And I put in for grant funding and I got it for a play that I wrote myself with Keith called Fever. And we did it, first of all, at Oval House, which is a theatre in South London, then at a weird place called Theatre Space in Covent Garden, which is long gone, and then at a place called the Lantern Theatre in Hackney. And so it was quite a long run. However, in the middle of all this, Keith was deported from England and the play was me and him doing the play. So (laughs) I had a bit of a problem. And the third one at the Lantern Theatre in Hackney, I did as a one-man show about immigration. I changed it completely. But also that was the time when I realised that we didn't have a life together in London and we had to find somewhere else to go. And so that's when we left and searched around Europe for some comfortable place to lay our heads and found one eventually in Lisbon. <laughs> so you're in Lisbon now together and you've, you've already started a creative partnership with the lovely Keith. So where does it go from there? Well, from there, it went to being in Lisbon with no real qualifications apart from my university degree and nothing very much, no kind of teaching qualifications. And so we went through a few years of having to earn money by doing little bits of teaching, doing little bits of voiceover, doing translations. I did quite a lot of translating, which is kind of slave labor in a way, (laughs) but it left no time for anything else. Mm. Until the year when I discovered this place called the Lisbon Players, which was, I'd heard about it, but I was thought, oh, it's an expat. I hate the word expat, by the way, and I don't consider myself an expat, but it was kind of had the image of an expat organisation, you know, the Brits, entertaining the Brits. But when I encountered it, it wasn't like that at all. And I auditioned for Waiting for Godot, and I was offered the part of Estragon. And that was the beginning of a 20-odd-year relationship with the Lisbon players, during which time I was never paid, but I was given the most amazing artistic freedom. I was given freedom to do basically whatever I wanted as a director. I was given money, not much, but I was given given money to do productions. I had a rehearsal space, I had a theatre, I had lighting, I had all the luxuries, but no one breathing down my neck, no one telling me what to do. It was amazing. I think it, it's a kind of unique experience. It was a magical place. There's no other word for it. Yes, Adrienne was <laughs> in one of my... The dresser. The dresser, yes. that's right. I manager was the stage manager who kept getting the drum roll wrong, but never mind, we'll move on quickly. <laughs> right. I want to step in here. This is a footnote for our listeners. 
So, Adrienne, you lived in Lisbon. Yes, for six wonderful years. And this is how we have a connection to Jonathan. With Jonathan, yes. And you were a member of the Lisbon Players, correct? I was indeed, yes. Okay, we've got that straight, thank you. I think it was one of the happiest times of my whole life because the solidarity, the relationships that built up between everybody, you know, directors and players and how we'd finish a show and go downstairs to the bar. And do you remember Seamau playing the piano and we'd all sing songs yes, from the shows? It was it was a total experience. And, and also what was amazing about Lisbon Players is that it was multinational, mm. but it was also people from many, many different backgrounds. There were scientists, there were visual artists, there were actors, there were people from all kinds of backgrounds. Yeah. And I think the word amateur is a real true misnomer. Oh, good. I went to lots of amateur productions in England, which were so dire that one crept out in the interval, or you just thought, well, I'll just listen to the words and enjoy that. I never felt that about Lisbon Players Productions. I've been to lots of professional productions that are so dire. (laughs) And actually, the the distinction between amateur and professional has almost disappeared in Britain now. Yeah. Because people who are doing theatre, they're doing theatre. You know, whether they're paid or not, they're doing theatre. That's right. The quality of the productions was very special. Yeah. One of the points you wanted to touch on was this question of amateur versus professional. And I hear what you're saying about those lines being increasingly blurred. But can you speak more about what this distinction between amateur and professional means, if anything? I don't think it exists anymore. I think it's historical. I think it goes back to, you know, the 50s, the 30s, the 40s. It's when there really was a distinction. It's related to my comments about repertory theatre, which has disappeared. Repertory theatre was the bedrock of professional theatre. It's where actors worked and were paid equity minimum. Now people are paid big bucks for doing things in the West End or perhaps nothing for doing something on the fringe or what used to be called the fringe. I think the distinction has pretty much disappeared. And I back up completely what Adrienne said about it's not to do with quality. You know, there's good theatre or bad theatre. You know, our great dames, our actresses, also echo the fact that a repertory theatre was the absolute core and backbone of what is now great British theatre. And it's really sad. It's not there anymore. It was such a strong grounding for them as actors. And of course, it wasn't just for actors. It was also for... Technicians, Technicians, for for everyone involved in the business of theatre. You spoke of the Lisbon players in the past tense. Is that because it no longer exists or because you're no longer connected? Well, it does kind of exist, but the terrible thing happened in December 2019, and that is that the British government sold the building in which the Lisbon players had been for 70-odd years to a property developer. And this is the story of Lisbon. I think it's mm. it's happening all over the place. Communities destroyed, and this is part of a community being destroyed. So there's no longer a Lisbon Players with a theatre. We effectively lost our theatre. So the Lisbon Players does still exist as an organisation. It's still doing plays, but it has to rent theatres to do them and rent rehearsal spaces. It's much more complicated. It doesn't really have a base anymore. It was a special place with red velvet seats and its very own rats, which made it part of what it was somehow. Yes, I forget about the rats. I forget about the bad parts. For me, it was just a perfect little theatre. Was it a political decision or an economic decision that the British government decided to dump on you? They said it was economic, but I think it was political. It wasn't even theirs. 
they had to turn all kinds of tricks in order to get the property in their name. It wasn't theirs. It belonged to the Anglican Church or someone. And it, it was scandalous. Anyway, that's another story. As far as I'm concerned, a nail in the British government's coffin. <laughs> was this what led you to then start shooting videos? No, it wasn't actually. What it was... It was COVID that sent me to the camp behind the lens. I'd written a show about foreigners coming to Lisbon in the past, you know, from the Middle Ages up to Madonna, in fact, mm -hmm. using extracts from people's own memoirs. And I was about to do it in a bookshop bar in Lisbon. And the day that we were meant to open, lockdown happened. So we had to cancel the show. I rather liked the script, so I was thinking of other ways to do it. And in the end, I hit on the idea of doing it as a film, thinking, you know, perhaps I could get around the COVID restrictions. Mm. And we made a film in the British Cemetery in Lisbon, which is called We Came to Lisbon, which I also used music by David Persson for. Yes. And it was kind of a miracle, really. I changed the script quite a lot to adapt it as a film. But it was a wonderful location, and we made it in one day with no money, zero budget, and one day. Amazing. There's a lot of fancy costumes in the film. Are they from the wardrobe? Lisbon Place did have a good wardrobe. still has a good wardrobe, yes. Mm. And also a great tank of actors. It was easy to call on actors to do it. I like in this movie the way people address the camera. So most of the time they're telling their own story directly to camera. Exactly. And we're flipping through time from medieval times right through to the present day. Yes. As you say, with Madonna. That's right. It's an interesting technique and it works. By the way, I'd never made a film before. I'd never, I didn't know anything about filmmaking. And I know it's not a proper film in a way. It's got a kind of theatrical bent. But again, it was a fantastically instructive process for me, a learning process for me. And since then, you've made offstage stories, which I thought were real people talking to camera, but they're actually actors playing the wardrobe mistress, the cleaner, the technician, and so on. Yes, yes. No, it's, it's scripted. It's, it's fiction. It's it's set in a fictional theatre. I don't know where the theatre is. It could be in Portugal, but I don't think so. I think it's probably in England. I think it's got little memories of rep for me. We did it all in a big, semi-abandoned theatre on the outskirts of Lisbon, you know, with a, a big stage and flies and a wardrobe and all the gear, the feeling of a, of a proper theatre. I could almost smell it, actually. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I guess it's the flies where all the ropes come down for hauling up scenery. Yes. And I swear to you, I could smell the sizal rope, slightly yes, burned yes. by the stage lights. It Absolutely. came across so strongly. The smell of size, which is what we used to paint the flats with, that's a strong smell. I have to say also, as a director, you were very, very good at the visuals, at creating... Is it the mise-en-scene? I know the opening sequence to the dresser was actually quite terrifying because you you kind of reproduced an air raid. That's right. And the sirens going off and people said, oh, my God. I'd forgotten You, you really felt you were there. With Vera Lynn playing. Yes. <laughs> Are you going to do more films, please, Jonathan? I'd love to. Good. The thing is, it was very important that I had uh, Luis Estreja was my cameraman and he was brilliant and taught me an awful lot. I'm the person directing what's behind the lens, but I'm not the person behind the lens and I'm not using the equipment. So I depend completely on other people for all the tech stuff. And it was great having Luis to do that. And so it depends on having having the right collaborators because I, I will never learn to do that myself. Have you got any ideas brewing? 
I've got lots of ideas. Oh, do tell. No, there's. Oh, go on, they're, Jonathan. They're Come on now. <laughs> okay, Jonathan, let's rewind a little because you've described the Lisbon players and making films and writing. But all of that time, I think you were also involved with another theatre, right? That is right, yes. It was while I was working at Lisbon Players, I suddenly realised that there was a vein of writing and theatre to be gleaned from the relationship between the Portuguese and the British, at any rate, the English language. What started me off on this was discovering the poet Fernando Pessoa, a great modernist poet writing in the early, early years of the century, but he'd actually been educated in South Africa. And so English was certainly his second language, and he, he wrote quite a lot in English. The interesting thing about Fernando Pessoa was that he divided himself into lots and lots of he what he called heteronyms, alter egos, very modern thing to do, you know. And so I, I I thought that there must be something to be written about Pessoa in English. And I also thought it would be nice to take it to Britain, where he wasn't very well known. So with Amanda Booth and Keith Davis, my now husband, we started a theatre group called Tagus Theatre. We were lucky enough to get funding to go on various tours in Britain to divulge certain aspects of Portuguese culture to Britain. And so for three or four years, we went to the Edinburgh Festival. We did shows in London at Oval House and the Greenwich Playhouse. And we also did a show in Bath. So I wrote a play about Pessoa called Pessoa Persona, which was about his heteronyms, about his multiple divided personality. And then later, I discovered another aspect of Anglo-Portuguese relationships that interested me, and that was a man called William Beckford, who was a very, very rich Englishman who landed in Portugal at the end of the 18th century after the earthquake, and he fell in love with a Portuguese boy. Now, lots of amazing things about that. And he was quite unashamed about his love for the boy. He was The boy was actually of Neapolitan ancestry, a musician. Mm -hmm. And he stayed with William Beckford for the rest of his life. And I thought there must be a play there. And so I wrote a play called Waking Thoughts, which was about Beckford in later life in Bath, remembering his time in Lisbon. Beckford was a difficult hero to write about because in some ways he was a cantankerous bastard and his, he was also extremely rich and I don't have much sympathy with extremely rich people normally, but I did find him fascinating. Mm. He was an, uh, a considerable artist himself and collector and builder. He built an uh, amazing building in England that no longer exists called Font Hill Abbey in Wiltshire, which fell down, to uh -huh. which is also an interesting part of the story. <laughs> So I wrote this play and we went all over the place and we were really successful. It was a two-man, two-hander. It was only two people and they sing and play and it went down very well. Mentioning music there, I'd like to go back to the start of this podcast where we heard some music for one of your films by David Pusson, who's worked on music for you. Tell us a little bit more about your collaborations with David Pusson. Well, David Pusson, he's Portuguese. I think both his parents are Portuguese. He was brought up in France. And I met him through Lisbon Players because I think he was in a play. He was acting in a play. And it was only later I discovered that he was a musician. And he actually manages to make his living from music, mostly by playing in bars. But I had no idea that he was such a great composer as well. 
More than that, I don't really know. I hope he's got ambitions to do other stuff because I think he is very, very talented. And what's your take on music in general? I mean, what do you listen to? What gets you excited? I'm not really musical myself, although I did do singing lessons for a while and I love music, but I've always really enjoyed working with composers. And so I worked with uh, Nunu Dariu when I did, the other composer, when I did Hamlet. I've worked with uh, Duncan Fox on my Chekhov productions uh, and David Passon on the films. And it's always been a great, great pleasure working with musicians, exchanging ideas and and making some kind of symbiosis of, you know, the visual, the the oral and what's happening on stage or on screen. But I come to it from a, uh, from the view of someone who's not basically musical, but I love music. So what do you listen to? What do I listen to? I, I hoped you weren't going to ask me that question because I listen, <laughs> I listen to very little and to, mostly now to classical music. But you were playing Josephine Baker one day when I, I play. Out. Yeah, I, I, I play various stuff like that. I play Bob Dylan. I play, you know, I'm not really up in music. I even went to the Madonna concert in 2019, which is the last concert I went to. <laughs> because, because she's <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> A very thin thread, though, with that connection to music and literature is something that takes place annually in Lisbon that I haven't found anywhere in England at all, and that is Bloomsday, which is the celebration of Ulysses. Doesn't it so happen in England? Can you talk? I'm no, I tried to get it going here, yeah. and nothing. No, it's still it's still happening. We still do it. We've got Bartholomew Ryan. I don't know whether you know him. Yeah, yeah. He, he's yes, a singer too. He's he's got a group called Lo Loafing Heroes. He's a he's a very good singer, and every year he organises Bloomsday, and it's always with music as well. So can you explain to people who listen who might not know what Bloomsday is, what it is? Bloomsday is a celebration of James Joyce's 1921 novel, Ulysses, which is kind of based very loosely on the Greek original. It's a very long book, but it all takes place in a few hours on one day in 1904 in Dublin. And June the 16th, I think it is, is Bloomsday. I'm not quite sure if it's Bloomsday because it's that mm -hmm. day that everything happens on June the 16th, 1904. And so in Ireland and various other places in the world on June the 16th, Bloomsday is celebrated with music, with readings from the book, with people playing the various characters in the book. And for the last couple of years, we've done it in the street, which has been a great experience because we do it in this very busy street, the Pink Street. I don't know whether you remember it. Yes, I, I was there last year, yeah. But it's very much in the spirit of James Joyce. We're in the rough and tumble of life. And it was great doing it like that. I hope we're going to go on doing it. I hope so too. We used to use yes. it in the old yes. Irish yes. pubs as well. It has been done in the Irish embassy, but that's not much fun. Here in Hungary, Bloomsday is celebrated. You know why? Why? It's because Leopold Bloom in the story is descended from a Hungarian family called the Blooms who live in a place called Sombate. Oh. That's where they came from. Hungarian Jewish. It pops up quite often, in fact, that Bloom himself uses Hungarian words mm. various times within yeah. Ulysses. That's interesting. That's very interesting. I'd forgotten about the Hungarian connection, but you're exactly right. You can go to Budapest for Bloomsday. I knew that. That's amazing. Mm. 
of the future, Jonathan? The future is a little bit of a blank canvas at the moment. Uh This summer, I thought, you know, after I'd made these films, I was kind of thinking, well, what's next? And then I auditioned and was accepted to play King Lear in a film in English. King Lear, amazing part for an old man. My God. It was wonderful. So I, I spent the summer making this film. So you never know what's around the corner. You never, never quite know. I have actually put in a proposal for the Lisbon players, such you know, as it is. So I'm hoping something will come of that. But whatever happens, you've always kept that thread of creativity alive through your long and involved life. Absolutely. I'm always writing too. Yeah, you wrote a lovely little story about the crew trapped on a ship during COVID, which was lovely. Oh, yes, my lockdown story. The amazing thing about that story is that someone entered it in the Daily Telegraph writing competition, of all things, and it got second prize, and it was published in the Daily Telegraph. In the Daily Telegraph, of all things. God, brilliant. Oh, more please, then. Where would you say you are on the political spectrum? I'm quite happy to say that I'm a romantic anarcho-socialist. Okay. Expand, please. I'm very definitely on the left in that I'm Mm -hmm. extremely suspicious of private enterprise and the way capitalism works and the greed that it engenders. I believe in public health and public education. and I believe that we need to spend money on those things and I believe that that money needs to come from taxes. So in that way, it's quite a conventional lineup. Mm. But I'm also a romantic and I don't know quite what that involves, but I think it involves a bit of individualism as well, you know, although I think individualism has brought us to a terrible point at the moment. But of of course, we are individuals and we do need to give room to express ourselves as individuals, but within a framework of support, of communal support. I think that for me, that's the only way it works. But I'm a romantic in that is that I think actually art, you know, created, the word created, by the way, is a weasel word. I think, although you're using it in the title of your podcast, I think it's a bit of a weasel word. You've changed it a bit by creativity, but creativity, you know, the creatives, who are the creatives? The creatives are very often these little dog's bodies who go on creating things for people to make more money. That's not creation. That's not about creativity. I think creation, creativity, art, is about making sense of the world. I buy into some of what you say, but I will defend our use of the weasel word creativity because creativity for me is something that is absolutely innate to being human. And it's not about having a job, it's about problem solving through whatever abilities we have. I agree with that. I'm I'm not arguing with that. It's just about the way the word is used, you know. As soon as someone says, oh, I'm a creative, Hmm. warning signs go up. What does this person mean by being a creative? (laughs) And very often it means something that I don't like very much. Hmm. I would take your view of yourself as romantic. Romantic means that you care. Romantic is about loving people and caring. And I think in politics recently, certainly in the UK, that has gone out of the window. Nobody cares about anybody anymore. It's all about money and whatever. So, you know, that's what true socialism is, I think, just providing people with the basics so that they can then go on and live. 
I have a question which is actually related to this romantic idea and creative idea, which is, are you English or Portuguese or European or what? Well, I think in a way I'm English because of the language and language is very important, mm -hmm. very important for me as a writer, although I have written in Portuguese, I've written some, um, I've written some screenplays in Portuguese, but but it's not my native tongue, and I don't feel completely happy in it. And I'm much—I I really feel English is my language. That doesn't mean I'm English, English with the red flag or anything. But it means that English is my home. And as Fernando Pessoa, the poet, said, "Portuguese is my home." Uh, yeah, I don't feel Portuguese. I don't feel British. Uh, I've actually got a Portuguese passport, but I don't particularly feel Portuguese. And European, yeah, I'd like to think of myself as European. That's a kind of very broad, very broad. It's like saying I'm, I, I feel like a human being, you know. <laughs> That's where I was connecting with this idea of romance, because mm. for me, being European has been extremely important. Mm. And this feeling of borderlessness yes. and being able to hop into a neighbouring country and yes. feel somehow part of that culture, which is absolutely why for me... Brexit was such a painful thing when that came along. Oh, so painful. Well, that's when I, I decided I had to become Portuguese because of Brexit, really. Yep. The day after Brexit was when I said, OK, now is the time to apply for citizenship here in Hungary. Good. Congratulations. Have you got a Hungarian passport now? Oh, yes. I just cried. I felt that my heart was broken because I always felt European. We might not live to see it, but I think Britain has to end this isolationism. Mm. And I think it's being proved in so many ways what a mistake it was. I do remember what you said to me when I first landed in Lisbon, and that was, if you want a creative life, you have to make your own. And that really stuck with me. And you can do that wherever you are. But I think that that's true of almost anywhere. I think, you know, for people in theatre, it's, it's pretty tough, actually. Yeah. Would you ever go back to live in Britain again, Jonathan? I don't think so, but I am 75 now, so there's not that much time left. But <laughs> I don't think I would. I've been away for more than 40 years. All kinds of things I miss a bit, but not enough. Yeah. And do you miss the whole idea of British theatre? That was the only thing that I missed, really, was our great actors and Shakespeare and all of that. Yeah, when I go back, I usually catch a few shows and, and it is very nice to see things, usually at the Unmade or somewhere like that. And it is very nice to see good things. But I think there's an awful lot of crap as well. How about you, Harlan? Would you ever come back? Yes, let's ask Harlan that. Not willingly, <laughs> no. But that means you would. If I was bound hand and foot and deported from here, possibly. <laughs> But it wouldn't be my first choice anyway. I would rather go to somewhere like Spain or Portugal, for that matter. Mm. What's the weather like in Budapest this minute? Right now, the weather forecast today from Budapest is zero degrees, bright skies and blooming chilly. <laughs> so, Jonathan, how do you sum up your life and times, what you've learned from being... You. I've never made any money. I've never been ambitious, actually. I've never been ambitious. This is a funny thing, actually, because I think most people are ambitious in some way. There was a brief period that I touched on when I thought I might become an actor, but it didn't last very long. And 
I just feel I've been very lucky. You know, I've, I've spent most of my life doing what I want. The years that I was working at, at Lisbon Players, the 20 odd years, I was lucky enough to have a job at the university, which only involved two mornings a week work, although it was a, considered a full-time job. So I can't really complain about that either. I was very, very lucky. I also found love and a partner and a husband. And so I consider that I've been incredibly lucky. If you could go back to that somewhat brutalised boy in those two horrible schools, mm. what would you tell him? I'd say, well, it can only get better. <laughs> and the way I saw that it could get better was through being on stage. That was the way out. Mm. And through reading and through poetry and through art, yeah. It's important to remember that your work as a director, as an actor, has brought so much pleasure to so many people. That's really good to remember. I do forget that because it's very transient. The work, working in the theatre is a very transient work and people forget about it very quickly. But yes, that's, it's important. Yeah, it's yeah. had an impact certainly yes. on my life and that's certainly as, as, as audience as, as well as an actress. That's the difference actually between theatre and film is that film is a kind of physical entity. It, it ends up as a thing, yeah. whereas theatre just vanishes immediately. But also the vanishing part of theatre is, is what's wonderful about it too. Yeah. Yes, they can't hold it against you for too long. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, Jonathan, I think it's probably time to wrap things up. It's been wonderful speaking with you and thank you for your stories and recollections. Very interesting. Lovely to speak to both of you. Thank you. You've had an interesting life. Yeah, I think so. You really have. And it was lovely to hear it and share. And there's bits of it I didn't know about. And, you know, ah, lovely. Thank yes. you so much. Thank you. So thanks a million, Jonathan. We played in with David Persone's music from Offstage Stories, a film by you. And we'll play out with the end of the Offstage Stories music by David. And once again... Thank you so much, Jonathan Waitman. Thank you, Jonathan. Great pleasure. podcast.